All right, well, we'll get started this morning. So we're going to start on, uh, this is Lesson 7 from the book that we've been working through, Deity and Decree by Samuel Renahan. So this has been adapted and then kind of filled in with some other, some other systematic theologies from some other Reformed gentlemen. So like we've been doing the last couple of weeks, I, what I wanted to do was continue on with our catechism, right? The catechism, the idea of, you know, you ask a question and it's a response. It's a helpful memory tool. So let's read that together. So I'll ask the question, and then we'll respond together with the answer. Question, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Yeah, a really beautiful, succinct way to help us, to, you know, keep these uh, truths uh, uh, near and dear. It's so easy to, you know, allow these things to become uh, put on the back burner, if you will. And what I wanted to do, uh, because a part of what this study is doing is it's helping us work through what the, the words that we use in our confession and what we're trying to do as we elaborate on the doctrine of God and then as we'll get to the Trinity and then we'll get to God's decree, is work through that and help kind of put this together and then build around that. So, on your notes, if I could have someone read from our confession. So this is chapter two, uh, concerning God or of God. Uh, and then uh, paragraph one, who can get that where it says, the Lord our God is but one? Who'd be willing to read that? Matt? The Lord our God is but one holy, living, and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by without body, parts, or passions, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Awesome. And then, uh, and I, I don't know if I got the complete paragraph one on there, but just wanted to highlight, especially what's underlined, is what we're going to focus on this morning. And then who would be willing to read paragraph two? So just the next section under there. And again, just trying to take a snippet, not, not necessarily the whole thing. Um, who, yep, all right, Pastor Kess. All right, excellent. Yeah, so that's what we're really going to be focusing on this morning, and we're, and we're going to get into that. And before I jump into that, I do just want to, one text that we're going to hit on, I think at least three times this morning, is going to be Romans 11, right? And there's a lot of beauty of Romans 11. Really, I mean, the whole book of Romans, right? If, I, if I'm being honest, right? It's kind of like a go-to book. But one verse that I wanted to highlight, right, just, again, as we renew our minds and think about the knowledge of God, Looking at Romans 11, verse 33, right? And just where Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable 
his ways, right? So that's the disposition that we want to approach the Lord this morning, right? When we're thinking about the knowledge of God, and it really does just humble us, humble us in praise, where it's like, who, who can, who can, um, who can really find the limits on his judgments and his ways? And just to think of like the depth, right? And uh, I remember one theologian said, right, uh, the Bible uh, can be compared to an ocean, right? Where little kids can go and put their feet in the uh, shallow parts of the ocean, right? But then it's deep enough where submarines can't find the depths, right? Yeah, just it's, it's beautiful when we think about this and it comes together. So, so where are we heading this morning? So this week and next week, we're going to talk about what are called the positive attributes of God. Now, this is in contrast to uh, the previous uh, two weeks ago, thinking about uh, the relative attributes or attributes of relation. And then uh, before that, we talked about the attributes uh, of negation or the negative attributes. So basically, God is not, right? And, and, and you're using it in that sense, like God doesn't change. He's immutable. So what we'll look at when we look at positive attributes are going to focus on those things that you could see or understand in creatures, but that are found most eminently or essentially in God. So other theologians have used this term uh, communicable attributes. It's, it's attributes that in some sense God shares with his creatures who are made in his image. So in that sense, it's, it's communicable. It's something that we share, we have an understanding with, right? As opposed to uh, like eternity, right? Which is, you know, um, uh, uh, um, different in, in that sense. So something that we share in um, as, as creatures being made in the image of God. So this morning we're going to hit on holiness, wisdom, and will. And then next week we're going to hit on God's liberty or freedom, which is a really beautiful thought. Uh, I'm really excited about that, as I am all these, but omnipotence and then also perfection, right? And, and I think that'll be just a really helpful way for us to think through and worship our God together. So on your notes this morning, we're going to start under the section of holiness. So Renahan lists holiness as God in conformity to himself. Now, holiness uh, is, is really interesting, right? As we think about it, it has this, you know, early idea in the Old Testament, right? If you go and look at some of the words of this idea of like cutting, right? And then separating. So there's this aspect of holiness in which there's some form of separation, right? There's this difference that we're making. And when we normally think about holiness, we're thinking about it in contrast to sin, right? Holiness, right? Be holy, be separate from sin, right? This, this contrast that, that we're making. And, um, but I think first and foremost, holiness uh, really denotes that God is not like his creatures, um, that he is separate from them. And again, not just like he's not sinful, right? Um, but there's this sense in which God is working all things for his name, and he is holy, he's separate, he is other than creature. And uh, some theologians like, um, uh, let's see here, I think on your notes, yeah, I've got uh, where Burkhoff, so he lists two aspects of God's holiness. And the first one on your notes is God's majesty holiness. It's this idea of God 
who exists by himself. He's in a class by himself, right? Uh, Arnie was hitting on this a couple weeks ago, right? You know, uh, hitting on genus and other things, right? And he's in a category all by himself. And this, and this word holy almost helps push us in this direction, right? He is, he's separate and other. Um, uh, and, that, and that is in a way that's very beautiful. Uh, in fact, uh, Louis Burkhoff, he says, uh, on your notes, holiness denotes that he is absolutely distinct from all his creatures and is exalted above them in infinite majesty. Right, so there's this idea in which holiness is this, be- like we're seeing holiness and it's a form of beauty, right? It's, it's something that should draw us in and draw us near. So turn with me in your Bibles. There's a lot of text, right? If you, if you were just to type in, you know, go to Bible.com and type in holy, you are going to get a lot of text, right? Holy is talked about, especially in the Old Testament, a lot. But I want to take us to an, a text in particular. So I know I've commended before, and I'm going to go ahead and put a, another plug. Stephen Charnock, so he's an older Puritan. He's got a book, uh, The Existence and Attributes of God. And I cannot commend this book enough with how helpful it, 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 it has been. So again, I would commend it. It is online for free if you're into ebooks. If you're not into ebooks, it's going to cost you some money. So, but he, 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 so he looks at the holiness of God, and what he really does, he starts with this text in Exodus 15, right, as, as, as other theologians have, and really, uh, there's, there's just, there's, there's a lot of beauty here as we look at this. So turn with me in Exodus 15. So you see on the top, um, you might see on the top of your Bible, over the chapter heading of uh, chapter 15, it'll say the Song of Moses, right? So what's happened, right? Well, we're familiar, right, with some of the pieces of the Exodus story, right, Pharaoh, and Moses and the Lord showing himself to be God. You have the 10 plagues over Egypt and in every way, God is showing himself to be exalted over the Egyptian gods, right? And then what is the pinnacle, right? Here they are, they're fleeing, they're running. The Red Sea's opened. God is showing his power to save. He delivers his people. And then the Egyptians drown in the Red Sea. Right? And God delivers his people through the judgment on the Egyptians. So then we get to chapter 15, and it's this celebration. Right? It is this celebration of victory. And I want you to notice a couple of themes in this song, and then, and then we're going to um, reflect and, and, and go from there. So in Exodus 15, I want you guys, um, if I can have a volunteer read, uh, so I'll just start in verse 1, and then we'll read a couple, couple different passages from Exodus 15. So next is 15.1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Right? And then he's going to go on about exalting God. Can I get someone to read verses 6 and 7? Who'd be willing to read verses 6 and 7? All right. Okay, excellent. And that, that's some of the themes that we're going to see, and I want you guys to see that or, or note it, right? When we see in verse 6, right, glorious in power, right? In verse 7, the greatness of your majesty, right? We're here, this, it's, it's this picture of God exalted, right? And again, it's been moving to this direction in the book of Exodus. Now look with me 
Uh, look at me in verse 11, and we're going to come back to this one because we're going to hone in on this one. Who can read verse 11 for me in Exodus 15, verse 11? All right, excellent. And then look with me in, uh, in verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And then can I get someone to read uh, verses 17 and 18? In Exodus 15. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Excellent. Yeah, and so... So what we see in verse 13, right, this idea, his covenant love, his steadfast love, he redeems his people, he guides them, right, uh, while judging Egypt. And then in verse 17, and then he's bringing them, he brings them to what? To his abode, right? Or as in verse 13, his holy abode, the sanctuary which your hands have established. So there's this idea in which God then brings his people and then he sanctifies them. And we're going we're gonna to go into that implication next because that really gets into this idea of ethical majesty, right? This idea of God consecrating a people and setting them apart. So, but, but turn to verse 11. We're just going to you know, zoom in, if you will, for a minute on verse 11, right? Where it asks, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And Stephen Charnock, he really delightfully... Uh, says this, right? When, when we're thinking about the first question, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? He says, questions are in scripture the strongest affirmations or negations. It is here a strong affirmation of the incomparableness of God and a strong denial of the worthiness of all creatures to be partners with him in the degrees of his excellency. It is a preference of God before all creatures in holiness, to which the purity of creatures is but a shadow. Right, so this beautiful idea, right, who is like you, O Lord, right, majestic in holiness. And this idea of holiness means there's a sense in which he's not to be compared, right? He is in a class all by himself, and then as God moves in history, he constantly puts it on display, right? Again and again and again. And so we see this, right? Even with this question, this strong affirmation that God is not to be compared and no creature is worthy to be a partner with him in this excellency, right? God is in a class by himself. But then next in verse 11, look with me where it says, after majestic and holiness... And then it says, awesome and glorious deeds. Now, this phrase here is, is translated differently in some of the different translations. And they're all trying to get at this aspect of praise, right? It's almost like this, this, this idea of praise is, is, is nurtured in this idea. So in the ESV, it says, awesome and glorious deeds, right? And that idea of, idea of awesome, right? That sense of awe, right? Awestruck. But in the NKGV, so the New King James Version, it says, 
uh, fearful in praises. In the NASB, it says awesome in praises. In the NIV, awesome in glory. Or in the Lexham English Bible, awesome in praiseworthy actions. So there's this sense in which when we ask the question, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? The response then is to be one of awe-struck wonder and praise, right? So that, that, that appropriate disposition where we stand back our, and we are in awe as we think about God who is holy, right? God who is separate, God who is in a class all by himself. He is so excellent and so majestic. So, and that's going to lead us in, like I said earlier, there's, there's going to be this implication. So in verse 11, right, we see this idea, God in his majestic holiness. But then that has this connection as it's worked out as God moves in human history, right? And it has this ethical, uh, this, this ethical idea, this ethical majesty. So in verse 13, like we said, or sorry, we, we could even start in verse 12. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them, right? So we see this aspect of judgment where the Egyptians were judged, but Israel was saved. They were delivered. And then what God does through delivering his people in his holiness, he then brings them and consecrates this people to himself. So there's this idea in which God is holy in his redemption and God is also holy in his justice, right? And normally, I'll tell you where, where I kind of end up from a standpoint of emphasis. When we think about God's holiness, right, there can be the sense in which, or from an emphasis, an immediate sense of condemnation or judgment or justice, right? It's like, God is holy, we are not, right? When we think of that text, that great text from Isaiah 6, right? Where like Isaiah's like, woe is me, right? Because the Lord is holy, 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 right? So there's that sense in which we can have that God's awesomeness in his justice, right? But then there's also that sense in which God is holy in his redemption. And we're seeing this here in Exodus 15. These ideas are tied together. Um, in fact, on your notes, if you look this quote from uh, Burkhoff, if someone be, will, would be willing to read the quote where it says, it is quite evident, you'd be willing to read that. Yeah, so really God is holy in, in all that sense, right? He's holy in how he delivers his people. He's holy in his justice, right? As all these things come together. 
And like I said earlier, in verse 17 and 18, we see this idea then in which God consecrates his people, right? So he's bringing them into his own place, right? In verse 13, it's his holy abode. In verse 17, that is his sanctuary, right? So the sanctuary was where God's holy presence was with sinful people, right? And, and we, we, you know, we did a Sunday school class or, or, or a series on this, right? We were thinking about the whole idea of uh, prophet, priest, and king and thinking about this temple idea and priesthood. All of that is tied in with God's holiness. Because one thing that's clear is sinful people cannot dwell with a holy God, right? But by implication, what we're seeing is there's this ethical aspect to holiness, right? We're contrasting, right, in this sense, sinfulness with holiness. And that's why on the top of your notes under holiness, we see God's conformity to himself. Because God is going to call people, right, like we, uh, um, uh, like we see, for example, on your notes, in Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, am what? Am holy, right? So there's this calling, there's this set, setting apart, and we saw that in Exodus 15, where God's calling his people, right? He redeems them, and now he's setting them apart. He's sanctifying them, right? And he's doing that because he is our holy God. So when we talk about this ethical majesty, right, or this conformity to who God is in the way that we live, right, in heart and in conduct, Burkhoff, he had, he had said this that I found really helpful. He said, the word holiness points to God's majestic purity or ethical majesty. But the idea of ethical holiness is not merely negative, right? Separation from sin, right? Holiness is separation from sin, even though that, that is true, but it's not merely that. It also has a positive content, namely that of moral excellence or ethical perfection. And I, I really love this, right? If man reacts to God's majestic holiness with a feeling of utter insignificance and awe, right? His, his smallness, if you will. His reaction to the ethical holiness reveals itself in a sense of impurity, a consciousness of sin, right? You, we, we think of, like we talked about with Isaiah or even Peter, right? Uh, when, when he was with Jesus on the boat with the fish, and, and, and Peter responds to Jesus and says, Jesus, be far away from me, right? For, for I am a sinful man, right? There's this sense in which he saw Jesus in his holiness. And what was his response, right? Man, I'm, I'm a sinful creature, right? So, so we see this, this distinction that's made when, when we think about holiness. And as we quoted from a minute ago from Leviticus 19, when God consecrated his people in the Old Testament in in Exodus, 50, or in Exodus, right, he redeems his people, he sets them up, and then really the book of Exodus is like an entire book dedicated to holiness, right? Where, he, where, where God over and over again calls his people, be holy for I am holy, but then he gives really specific instruction. What does that holiness look like, right? So he gives them laws and commands, and, 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 and these laws and commands relate in different ways. Some of it related to sacrifices, right? Because sinful people 
could not have access to a holy God without what? The shedding of blood, right? There was no access to God's special, favorable presence except through the presence of sacrifices. And Leviticus, over and over and over again, right? And so that leads us, right? So as we think about God's holiness and we think about us as creatures and as we relate to holiness, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. To be honest with you, I wanted to spend the entire morning on holiness, uh, but I'm really doing my best to make sure that that doesn't happen. So go, go to Hebrews, right? Because Hebrews is showing how Christ then has this ultimate fulfillment in what, in how, uh, in, in, in what all the Old Testament was pointing to. And go to Hebrews chapter 10. And can I have someone read uh, verses, uh, verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 10? For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All right. Awesome. So we're seeing this contrast, right? Holiness is moral purity, and sin is this defilement, right? It's this impurity, and it requires cleansing. And how is sin cleansed? It's cleansed by blood. But then we have this problem. Well, there's a whole bunch of blood in the Old Testament, right? But that's because that blood was always pointing to the real and true sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could actually take away sin, right? Now, how does this relate to holiness? Look at me in verse 10. In verse 10, and by that will, so this, this, is, a, this is a quote, from, from earlier in the Old Testament. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So there's this ultimate question, right? How does man become holy, right? How do people become holy? And, and we're reminded we become holy not because intrinsically, who we are in an ultimate sense, right? There's, there's a derived sense in which that's true and which, which overflows. But this ultimate sense, how do we become holy? It is because of Jesus, right? Jesus, who is the Holy One of Israel, right? He is the one who, if you will, became unholy through imputation of our sins. He took on him our defilement, and so us in our union to him, are no longer impure, but instead the scripture can use phrases like we are sanctified in him. We are um, pure in him. And that idea, like when you look in verse 10, it's not that we, have, that we are being sanctified, which we'll see in verse 14, but it's what? It's we have been sanctified, right? It's this completed action. So when we think about God's holiness, we think about how can we dwell with a holy God, our minds should immediately run to the finished work of Jesus, right? The Holy One 
who became unholy for us, right? Through that great doctrine of substitution and imputation. And then in verse 14, what we see is the result is the outworking. We are to become what we already are. So we are already, always, and will be, never to be reversed, holy in Jesus. And yet the outworking of that is those, in verse 14, those who are being sanctified, right, from one degree to another. So, trying to come full circle with this idea of holiness and as it relates to God and how we have access to a holy God. Now, when, when you're not a Christian, right, our thought of holiness is absolutely terrifying, right? Because it, it makes us want to push away, right? Because we see more of our imperfection, not only our weakness, but our sinfulness and everything about us that has run from the Lord, right? But in Jesus, and this is the beautiful thing, right? Instead, instead of us saying, get away from me, Jesus, right? We're like, when we see God's holiness, we thank you, Jesus, right? And we run to God's holiness because we've been given new hearts. We love God's holiness, right? And if you will, we think of it from that, uh, um, uh, like, like uh, Burkhoff had used that term, God's majesty holiness, right? As we draw in, we are literally in awe-struck wonder of who God is. And now with the new hearts, we can worship him. So on your notes, I've, um, just as like a response or usefulness, in Revelation 4, verse 8, there's that beautiful text, right, where all of heaven is worshiping the Lord, right? And what are they saying? Holy, 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 right? And that's the disposition we have. It is not holy, 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 and we are running away, right? Not anymore, not in Jesus, but now it's holy, 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 and it is a praise, it is a delight. All right. So any questions before we go to wisdom? Questions, any thoughts? All right. All right, let's hop in to thinking about God's wisdom and God's knowledge, right? So. The, the way that um, it's being categorized here, so we're thinking about wisdom from that standpoint, understanding all things understandable. Now, theologians have made a whole bunch of nuances when we think about God's knowledge, right? Because they're trying to help us to make these nuances or distinctions to really help us try to capture um, this idea in which God is infinite. Uh, like, the, like, like our confession says, his knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or um, un uncertain. Now, there's two beautiful psalms. Um, turn with me real quick to, to Psalm 139. And again, one of the things... Just by seeing a psalm, right, a psalm of praise, as we think about this aspect of God's knowledge, this is, this is what we want to be praying. Lord, please work in me this kind of heart. Work in me this kind of disposition. As I better understand who you are, that I would respond to you in worship. It would make me incline more and lean upon you, right? So in Psalm 139, that, it would, that we would want it to result in praise and singing to the Lord, and our hearts would be elevated in that sense. So in Psalm 139, can I have someone read verses 1 through 6? 
Yeah, isn't that beautiful, right? It's like it, God's not his his thoughts are not our thoughts, right? It is too high. It is uh, like if you look in uh, what Psalm one forty seven and look in verse five. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Or look with me in. Um, I apologize. I should have put the uh, the text where we could just read it and make it a little easier. If you go to First Samuel chapter two, I want to hit both of these. These are really good. First Samuel chapter two, and in verse three, in Hannah's prayer, it says, "Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed." This idea of which. God knows all things, right? Even the secret things. Or turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, in verses 27 and 28, he says, in Isaiah 40, verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. And then I love this right here. His understanding is what? Unsearchable, right? God is not dependent on any creature. He doesn't need input. He, by himself, knows all things, right? And then, so... Theologians will make nuances, right? He not only knows all things as they are and as they exist, but he knows all possible things, right? All things that don't exist, right? But are possibilities. He understands them and he understands them completely. His understanding is unsearchable, right? Burkhoff here, again, just really quick definitions. That When he talks about knowledge, because we'll make a little bit of a nuance between knowledge and wisdom, he says... Knowledge is that perfection of God, whereby he, in an entirely unique manner, knows himself and all things possible and actual in one eternal and most simple act. Now, because we're talking about this idea of eminence, right? So it's something in which is shared with a creature, right? Because we're made in God's image. So when we think about knowledge, one of the, or there's two nuances that I want us to make as we think about knowledge. So with humans, we have minds, right? And, and minds are a part of who we are, right? So in that sense, we're composed. We have parts, right? We got minds, we got wills, we got a conscience, right? There's these different aspects that make up who we are, right? But like we had uh, talked about several lessons ago, right? God is simple. He's not composed of parts. So we're going to see um, words or phrases, right, where it talks about like the knowledge of God or the mind of God, or we're going to hit on uh, will next, or the will of God. But it's not in the same sense as the creature, right? There's this, there's this nuance where as creatures, this makes up who we are. But with God, he's giving us creaturely language by analogy to help us to better understand who he is. So in, in that sense, 
right? We, we want to be, um, we want to be mindful of that. And we're going to look at Romans 11, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to I'm going to wait till we get to um, this 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 next part, and then we'll we'll get there. Because Romans 11 is like this beautiful response when we think about the mind of the Lord and wisdom and things of that nature. But secondly, God. So we're thinking of on your notes, right? This uh, uh, these two distinctions. So one is because God is simple, He doesn't have a mind in regards to like a faculty and that's parts of who make up or what makes up God, right? God, God is spirit. But secondly, God also doesn't have like a succession in regards to how humans grow in knowledge, right? For us to attain knowledge, it requires us to make observations or inferences um, and to look at different things, to think things through, and then we develop in our understanding. But with God, there is no development. There is no understanding in that sense. He always has, um, in that perfected sense, knowledge at one single point, right? And again, I know I'm even using like timely terms, right? But he always has knowledge and it's never gone any less or any more because he has perfect understanding of himself and all things. So one of the things we do see in scripture, right, is this little bit of a nuance between knowledge and wisdom, right? Uh, maybe you've heard wisdom is knowledge applied, right? Or this practical aspect of knowledge, right? And we definitely see that, right? You look at the Proverbs, there's definitely that implication. So when we think about the wisdom of God, right, it has a little bit more of that flavor. And I really like what Burkhoff said. I guess I don't even need to say that, right? Because if I included on here, it, it qualified and, you know, made it to the sheet, right? Um, so who can read that for me, where it says uh, wisdom and then that perfection of God? Who'd be willing to read that nice and loud? Yeah, Crystal? That perfection of God, whereby he applies his knowledge to the attainment of his end, in a way which glorifies himself, and applies the final end to which all secondary ends and support men. And according to scripture, this final end is the glory of God. Yeah. Yeah, so... Now, I want to I, I contrast that. So I, I really like what Burkhoff said. So there was a different theologian, and he said something, but it was a little bit more loose, where he says, um, uh, that attribute of God whereby he produces the best possible results with the best possible means, right? So God understands what's best, but I like what Burkhoff said, because what is best? That's the glory of God. That's the fame of his name, right? And God has so orchestrated not just some things, but all things according to the counsel of his will that he is to get the most glory. So then, what should our response be? Right? When we think about wisdom in that sense, that he is so ordered, all things, right? not just in general, but even in the particulars, what should our response be? Go to Romans 11. I wanted to do this more, but I'm trying to save us some time. So go to Romans 11. And, and let's just glory in these four verses. Who be willing to read verses 33 to 36? But with the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out? For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has first given to him and shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom 
Yeah, isn't that beautiful? Right? It's like, now, I don't have time to go into like how Romans 11 is building to this and, and why Paul concludes this here. But I want to see this from a use, uh, as, as a use it is to us, that God is working all things. And our response, right, should be joyfully, man, this is amazing. God is working all things according to the counsel of his wisdom, right? He is wise in what he is executing, where we ask this, the, you know, this question, for who has been his counselor? When has God been in need of advice, right? But instead, we're glorying in God has never been in need of any advice. He doesn't need input. He's not looking for a show of hands, right? He doesn't need to feel which way the winds are blowing, right? God is sovereign, and he shows that in his wisdom, right? And again, we're going to hit on this when we talk about God's freedom, right, uh, or, or liberty. So it's a beautiful idea. So what, so what should that mean to you, Christian? So what should that mean, right? We have promises, and those promises are really, really important for our Christian life. Because those promises point back to attributes like this with wisdom, right? God has so structured not just human history, not just the life of Christ, but even the particulars in your life, the disappointments and the things that we look at as highlights, right? He has so structured all of them to highlight and give himself the most glory. Right? So when we look at those promises, we, we need them. Right? We think of Romans 8.28. He is working all things for the good of those who are the called in Christ Jesus. Right? He is working it for their good. Psalm 84.11. No good thing you withhold from those who walk uprightly. Right? What's that doing? It's, it's not only taking us back to God's goodness... But it's taking us back to his wisdom. Lord, I don't understand, right? And then fill in the blank. What is that situation, right? But God has so structured it with his wisdom. And what should that elicit from us, right? The sense in which we just rest on the Lord, right? Give your burden joyfully to the Lord. Rest on his wisdom with how he has set up all things, right? I don't want us to become passive with God's sovereignty, with what I'm about to say here, right? But there's a sense in which you just give it all to the Lord, right? And it's in a, in a sense, right? You step back and just see what the Lord does, right? Now, again, I'm not saying be passive, don't be involved in your Christian life. That's not what I'm saying. But there's a sense in which God has so worked out all things to bring glory to his name, right? There's a sense in which we wanted to step back and marvel at what God is doing, right? Because according to his wisdom, what is he doing? He's bringing his name the most fame. Right? Because his wisdom has so orchestrated all things. All right. Let us go to will, and then we'll see if we've got any questions. All right. So God's will. So this is a, a phrase that we've seen in different, um, different texts of Scripture. And uh, this, this definition that Renahan provides where he says, God, in one mere simple act, willing absolutely the being of everything that he pleases to will. So it's this idea in which everything that comes to exist comes to exist by God's will. Now theologians have made this nuance so that we protect uh, from this, uh, this idea of pantheism, right? Where, where everything basically becomes God. No. 
there, there's this nuance. By God's will, everything uh, comes to be. And we're going to see that here in just, in just a minute. Right? Sam Renahan says, uh, and I, on your notes, we attribute a will to God because in that way we can express that all things exist not by accident or necessity, but by the will of God. They derive their existence from God and would not exist apart from God's sovereign decree. So when we think about creatures and we think about a will, right, it normally denotes um, uh, a purpose or a decision or some form of pleasure, right? And, and they're all connected, right? We make decisions based on what pleases us, right? It, it's all connected, if you will. And we see language that refers to God's will, to what he desires, what pleases him, and the things that are according to his will, right? We, we see that kind of language. And there's several hues of slightly different colors when we use the word will. And they're going to have these nuances, but they're all going to come back to this similar point, right? About pleasure, decision, purpose. It's all going to be in this, this bubble, if you will. And I have on here a quote from Burkhoff. And, and really, I would encourage you, if you look at these texts uh, in, in, in the quote that we're about to read, there's some, there's some gems, right? Because it's showing what we talked about with wisdom, right? That God's will is so extensive, it extends literally to all things, right? And, and this goes back to sovereignty, right? This is God's sovereign will. And we're going to talk about next week, his freedom. God does whatever he pleases, right? And that's the best thing for us. There's nothing arbitrary or capricious about that. That is the best thing for us. So let's read uh, that quote from Burkhoff. Could I have a volunteer who'd be willing to read where it says, the importance of the divine will? The importance of the divine will appears in many ways in Scripture. It is represented as the final cause of all things. Everything is derived from it. Creation and preservation, uh, government, election and probation, uh, reprobation, the sufferings of Christ, regeneration, sanctification, the sufferings of believers, man's life and destiny, acts, sorry, and even the smallest things of life. Hence, Christian theology has always recognized the will of God as the ultimate cause of all things. Nope. And, that, and that is really beautiful. And so for time's sake, there's some texts here, like in Psalm 135.6, right? Our God is in the heaven. He does all that he pleases, right? A beautiful text, right? Talking about God's will. He does all that he pleases. Ephesians 1.11, God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, right? Of his good pleasure. And what we see on your notes there's these um, theologians have then tried to nuance or find two aspects that we see in Scripture of God's one will. And so on your notes, you'll see the decretive and the preceptive will of God or the secret and the revealed will of God. Now, wh now, what is that referring to? What are theologians trying to nuance? Well, are there two wills in God? No, there's only one will of God, right? It says the will of God, right? According to God's will. But there's these two aspects and um, uh, I'll give you an example. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, The secret things 
belong to the Lord our God, right? But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So there's going to be this idea in which the secret hidden things that belong to God's will are the things that he has decreed from all eternity. But then there's also this idea in which there's the revealed will of God that men are, are, are to keep. Think of Matthew 7, 21, where Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but what? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there's a sense in which there's the will of God which decrees all things. And then there's also this aspect in which there's the will of God that can be obeyed or disobeyed. Right? And all that comes together in God's one will. So there's these two aspects that I, that I want us to see here. So um, we've got like two minutes for questions, and then we've got to close, trying to close at 10.10. Give us a couple more minutes. So any, any questions as we think about God's will or as we think about God's wisdom? Or, or not, not even questions, but even things that come to mind. Applications, other things. Yes, so that was how we use God's promises, right? And what they're doing is they're, they're taking us back to trust the wisdom of God, right? So it's like, hey, God's working all things for your good. And implied behind that is God's wisdom in the way that he has set up all of human history, even the details of your own life, right? And that promise is that you as a Christian, he's working that for your good and you can trust him. You can, you can take whatever burden you have and put that on the Lord, right? and rest in him. All right. All right, well, let's go ahead. Let's thank the Lord for our time, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord God, we do worship you and thank you for this morning. And we just pray that you would refresh and encourage our hearts as we think about your holiness, as we think about your wisdom, and as we think about your will. Truly, you are good, and we do. We want to worship you, and we thank you that we get to gather even on this Lord's Day morning and get to worship you as a people, corporately, for your namesake. Please empower us through the Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.